Hello and welcome to Elucidations, an unexpected philosophy podcast. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Christopher Beam, who also goes by Chris, Managing Director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and Research Professor of Political Science at Penn State University, and the author of The Seven Democratic Virtues, What You Can Do to Overcome Tribalism and Save Our Democracy, out now from Penn State Press. And he is here to discuss democratic virtues. Chris Beam, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Uh, it's been a while that we've tried to get this to happen, and it's actually happening. So, Totally exciting. Yeah. Thank you. So I thought we could start by talking about the state of our democracy. Um, it's no secret that in America, we're becoming divided. and The vision is manifesting itself in more and more stark ways. But one thing I think there's bipartisan agreement about on both sides of the political aisle is that democracy is in crisis. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, people who tend to vote Democrat uh, are concerned about the January 6th Capitol riots as um, an act that kind of like questioned the validity of the democratic process. And in that way, democracy is getting undermined. But then uh, a not insignificant number of people (laughs) on the other side of the political aisle believe that the democratic process is getting undermined because the election was like somehow fake or fraudulent. Mm -hmm. Um, So what do you think about this issue? Do you think that our democracy is in a crisis? You know, it's one of our human biases, and I'm assuming we're probably going to talk more about that. But one of them is to give a particular um, importance and distinctiveness to the time in which you find yourself living, right? right. And so the I best think, record is whatever came out when I was 16. exactly that's right. And so uh, we had to be cognizant of that and be aware that that's operative in us. But I also think it's true that there are. Um, regularly now, events that are unprecedented and that um, bespeak a a level of polarization, of animosity um, that is at least, you know, you'd have to go back to the 60s. And, you know, there are not bombs going off with the regularity that there were in the 60s. And that's another thing to keep in mind. But it is also true that this summer, a group of historians met with Joe Biden just to tell him (laughs) that this is a distinctive moment and that it at least approaches if does not absolutely qualify as a crisis. And the crisis is about the, the continued longevity of our democracy. And so I think it is fair to say, yeah, it's a crisis. So what would you say is the cause of this split in opinion about whether the voting process we currently work under is legitimate? To some degree, the ability of human beings to assess reality in ways that conform to their desires is endemic and inescapable. And so some of this is not new. Some of this is inherent to the human species. But it's also true that in the last 30 years, there have been mechanisms and new phenomena on the scene that exacerbate these tendencies. So I'm, I'm thinking of cable news and the 24-hour news cycle and the fact that there has been, through Fox, 
developed an extremely effective business model of of feeding people's uh, worst instincts and their notion that we're the good guys, we're the true Americans, we're the moral people, and the other side is not. That's part of it. And then on top of that, you have the internet, which for all the good that it's done throughout the world in terms of bringing people together and mobilizing them, it's also an excellent way for you to connect with people who think precisely like you. And then once that happens, the natural human tendencies to up the ante in terms of rhetoric, to push the uh, the envelope in terms of how good we are and how bad our enemies are, have all grown apace. So they are bigger and larger and more dangerous than they have been heretofore. There were you know, when I was growing up in the 70s, there was a much different world um, where there was a local newspaper that had to um, reach out to the broad community. And there were three channels, three networks. Their challenge with respect to market share was in the, the tens of millions. And the only way you could do that was by being middle of the road. And so that created one kind of society and one, and those all pushed back against these natural tendencies. Now, those natural tendencies have opened the door. So let me just say one more thing. You know, there is finally, there's been a tendency um, within the Republican Party to up the ante in terms of this kind of animosity. And this goes back to Nixon's, you know, Southern strategy. But with Trump, you see this uh, strategy reaching unparalleled and, and heretofore unseen heights. That was his political model that, um, you know, it's kind of typically populist where our job is to take back our country from these elites who are immoral and un-American. And um, the whole political model is us versus them. And so once you put all those things together, um, yeah, you're going to have a, a very polarized society. So one thing that I find interesting about what you just described is that it seems like there's a liberal slash democratic party analog of at least some of the things that you just discussed. Yes. So, for example, you know, there's um, Hillary Clinton's infamous basket of deplorables mm-hmm. line, mm-hmm. which, you know, many people of varying ideologies have cited as an example of, you know, kind of like demonizing the other political mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a difference between the way the left wing media ecosystem and the right wing media ecosystem, at least if we're talking about like legacy television media, hmm. uh, have participated in this ramping up of, you know, animosity? It is an historical fact that when MSNBC was founded, it was founded as a kind of straight ahead news and information network. And they were losing money. And they saw that Fox was making money hand over fist. And so they made the conscious decision to adapt that model to the left. And so, yeah, there are examples, right? Um, And if you want that, if you want that on the left, you can find it just as readily as you can on the right. Maybe not quite as extreme, maybe not quite as extensive, but it's there. However, if you see... NPR as the equivalent, uh, the functional equivalent of talk radio, I'm going to tell you, you're wrong, 
right, you're mistaken. There are standards of behavior and standards of professionalism that obtain at NPR and other, you know, The Economist, the, you know, The Wall Street Journal, mostly, um, <laughs> Washington Post, New York Times, mostly, um, that, that set proper standards for the truth, you know, striving for objectivity, understanding that we'll never reach it, but striving for that as the goal. And so, yeah, I do think there are plenty of ways that you can educate yourself in a way that is useful for a democratic citizen. But if what you want is to get your dopamine fix from somebody telling you that you're the good person and that the other tribe is the bad person, you can find that too. And it's very, it makes for very good business. It makes for lousy politics, it makes for a bad society, but it makes a lot of money. So I kind of want to ask you about the internet as well and the role the internet has played in this. Um, because on the one hand, especially once the social media networks like Twitter and Facebook started not serving up posts in the order in which they appeared, which is what they originally did, and started using an algorithm to try to only show you the things it thinks you're going to like mm-hmm. using various fancy AI technologies. Speaking of uh, very successful business models. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. That phenomenon in particular is something that I would point to as a way in which the internet has sort of um, rigidified the barriers of the, of political echo chambers. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, my personal experience of the internet has been way broader than my experience of traditional legacy news media growing up, where it was just sort of a monolith. There was one perspective that you could get. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the internet, I actually find it much easier to just go seek out perspectives of people that I totally disagree with. Yep. And I find that very enriching to just acquaint myself with um, all the different viewpoints that are out there. And it seems to me that that's possible now with technology in a way that it just wasn't when I was growing up. And when I was growing up, you would just assume everyone takes position X mm-hmm. on question Y. Mm-hmm. No, it's absolutely true. In a complicated world, both of those things can be true, right? It is uh, also true that in nations where uh, there is an autocrat or a threatened autocrat, social media of one sort or another gave people the opportunity to organize, to mobilize, to recognize that they're not alone, um, to keep each other safe. That um, and, And it would be you know, myopic and foolish to say that this is all bad or all good. But especially in our context, in an established democracy, there are mechanisms and models within the internet that are designed with exquisite precision to Mm, appeal to our worst instincts. So earlier you mentioned that people tend to have what we might call a tribalism instinct that leads them to maybe not be the best assessors of evidence rationally, maybe to uh, make more mistakes in determining what's true uh, and what to believe than might happen otherwise. I wonder if we could talk about just like what would be an example of a person's tribalism instinct making them get something wrong? All right. Well, so that's a slightly complicated question. So let me just kind of lay it out. Tribalism is an instinct because it is 
part of the reason that we survived and thrived as a species. And so anything that is that enhances our chances of survival becomes selected and it becomes part of us. The reason that um, tribalism was selected was because it made us more successful in terms of defending ourselves from predators and also from other hominids. Right. One person's not going to be able to defend themselves against a mammoth, but maybe 20 people building a trap can. Precisely. Precisely. Not to mention if there's um, another group of hominids that's hostile and they're not organized, then you got a better chance of defeating them. I actually have a question about this. So I can see how banding together into small groups would enhance our reproductive fitness Mm -hmm. because we won't get eaten by as many woolly mammoths or whatever the right. historically accurate animal yeah, would be. <laughs> Probably not woolly mammoths, but anyway, <laughs> move, moving on. Large predators. <laughs> um, like, wouldn't there be even more selection pressure to band together as an entire species uh, so that we're getting, like, even more benefits of that teamwork mm-hmm. and we're even safer We'd be even safer against predators if we weren't also fighting each other. Like, why isn't there that selection pressure? Well, I think, you know, A, the tribal instinct, it's actually been kind of documented that no matter how many Facebook friends you have, no matter how many LinkedIn contacts you have, the kind of limit of a human's ability to kind of think about others as friends and as intimates is about 150 people. That's good. Yeah, we can't fit you know, 8 billion people in our heads. Right. Like, and really, right. like, think about who they are as people. Like, that's, we don't have enough room in our heads for right. that. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that, so that's tied exactly to the instinct. But the other thing I would say is that our rational selves have done a pretty good job of overcoming exact, or, or moving towards exactly what you, you're arguing, right? If a threat yeah. is nuclear war then we are rational enough to see that we got to do something about this, right? We cannot continue as if we're fighting with sticks and rocks. And so we will move towards some kind of organization. It's not kumbaya. And, and really, there's yeah. very few politics that are kumbaya. And more, I would say that to the degree that it does become kumbaya, it almost invariably means that the them becomes worse, yeah. Right. Um, you know, yeah, it is a little weird to be like, let's not nuke each other. It's so kumbaya. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's that. That's a long way to go. But if we can just get <laughs> to not figuring out how not to nuke each other, that's a pretty good step towards cooperation. And student and, and human beings are extremely good at cooperating. And that goes back to it's fascinating research between apes or monkeys and babies in terms of how they will cooperate with each other. And we have that ability innately that other primates do not have. So there's some kind of problem happening right now. And it at least has these two components that we've discussed. People in different political factions are very angry at each other a lot of the time and have trouble discussing why they're angry a lot of the time. And then another problem is this just maybe almost like more logistical problem of like, well, how can we even have elections if people don't believe (laughs) that they're real? (laughs) Um, Is that the extent of the problem or does it kind of go beyond just those two things? Well, I think in two ways, at least, it goes much deeper. One is that anger, which is almost an inevitable, inescapable part of being in a democratic society. We're going to be angry about what other people say and what other people do and what other people believe. Full stop, right? If 
and when that anger metastasize into hatred, then it becomes much more difficult to sustain a democracy. And I just, I mean, there is clear evidence in polling data that hatred has gone up. So that's one aspect of it. Um, yeah, very few bipartisan marriages compared right, to interracial right, right. marriages, yeah, for example. Yeah. And it, compared to all the other things that used to be deal breakers, right? Religion, uh, race, ethnicity, yeah. all those things. Yeah, no, no problem. As long as you're Even on the right page, maybe, right? As right? long as you're on the right tribe. The other thing that's different and that I am trying to kind of do some research on now is um, we don't share the same understanding of facts, of evidence, of how we um, assess arguments. And when that breaks down, democracy breaks down, right? If we simply cannot agree, um, you know, Belgium did not invade Germany. Germany invaded Belgium. That's how World War I started. If you can't accept that as reality and start your argument with those shared presuppositions, then argument is a waste of time. And if argument is a waste of time, democracy is a waste of time. And I guess also another thing I would say about the like um, who attacked who first historical question is like it's not like those historical facts can't ever be questioned. I mean, it, they're contingent historical facts and, you know, it's technically always possible that tons of new evidence will flow in sure. showing that it didn't happen. But it seems like the issue is more that both people involved in the discussion should be on the same page about like what counts as new evidence mm-hmm. and like what – what could um, countervail against our previous beliefs and so forth? Right. It's a challenging, you know, prospect. And I would say one of the primary challenges of undergraduate pedagogy is helping people develop the skills and disposition of self-critical thinking, right, of actually examining one's presuppositions. You don't, we don't want to do it right? It goes against our kind of instincts of self-preservation. And it's hard. We, we seem to like talking about it, though, right? So like, <laughs> do the research, right? People are always saying that when they're, you wonder what their notion yeah, of research well, is sometimes. Yeah, exactly, right. Mm-hmm. So it seems like we have maybe the idea that something on those lines is what we should be doing. Uh, but maybe we're better at talking about doing it than actually doing yeah, it. Yeah, well, and when is that not the case? Yes. Yeah. So I don't think anybody likes this situation. That's another fact mm-hmm. that there's bipartisan agreement about. Yep. Nobody likes True. living in a divided America. So, like, where do we go from here? Um, is there anything that we can do to um, ratchet down this tension, to bring people more into alignment about what sources of information they're willing to trust or, like, what the ground rules for assessing evidence are? All right. Well, so now I get to the point where I, you know, start pitching my book, right? It is just true that the reason I started this book is because people kept asking me, you know, students, people I met at cocktail parties who found out what I did for a living would just say, well, what can I do, right? What can I do about this? And, I, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought my answers were pretty crappy. And so I just kept thinking about it. And I'm like, you know, most of us are not wealthy enough to make dramatically important contributions to campaigns. Most of us are not media moguls, uh, and certainly most of us don't have a lot of political power. But there is one thing that all of us can do to kind of move away, I say move away from the brink, you know, move away from the abyss. And I think that is to commit to a set of democratic virtues. It doesn't mean kumbaya. It doesn't mean that we are ignoring the things that we 
really disagree with. It's just an agreement, a social agreement about how we behave towards each other. And understanding it that way means every group without exception has some virtues. They may not be articulate, but if you go to, you know, a motorcycle gang, you're going to see virtues. If you go to a country club, you're going to see virtues, right? Um, people have expectations that are shared about how we interact with each other. And a democracy is the same way. And we have, A, not devoted enough attention to those virtues. And B, we have allowed the more um, vicious elements of our nature to run things. And so if we want to step away from the brink, if we want to recreate the possibility for genuine democratic politics, then we need, all of us need to um, recommit. And I say recommit because I think this is what the founders said as well. But we need to recommit to a set of democratic virtues. So maybe we can talk about what some of these virtues are. So what do you think would be an example of a virtue um, where virtue means, you know, something like um, a personal skill you have at doing the right thing in a certain kind of way? What would be an example of a democratic virtue that you think it would be helpful to cultivate? And maybe like, how do we do that? Interesting. I did already talk about the idea of anger and not hatred. And that is the virtue of temperance. And I don't want to discount how difficult this is, right? Because if you are a person who has tied their identity, their meaning, their value to something like the Second Amendment or to something like pro-choice or to something like, you know, climate change, then anytime you hear something contrary to that, it is a personal attack. Whether you are going to explicitly, consciously read it as that is one thing, but your brain is seeing it as an attack because it's so closely linked to who you are. So, your ability to accept the idea that this person has just as much right to say what they think as you do to say your what you think and to do that and to continue to live in peace, there's nothing natural about that. There's nothing easy about that. There's nothing obvious about how we develop those skills. And yet, if we don't do that, if we don't develop that kind of temperance, then eventually we end up into hatred and then into ultimately civil war. So I totally agree with this. And I think most people I know, whatever side of the political aisle they're on, are not great at <laughs> reacting temperately to just, even just hearing someone's state of view that they don't agree with. Mm-hmm. So I guess the first thing I want to say about this instinct is it seems like really bad to me. Like, Definitely, we seem to have it, but it seems like one we should try to, like, shut up or suppress. Um, And my reason for thinking this is, look, if we're conversing with someone about a fact of the matter and we're both approaching it rationally, there's always the chance that the other person might be right. Right. If they think something that I don't. Mm -hmm. And if they're right and they show me why they believe what they believe and I'm persuaded by it, like, that's a favor they're doing to me. They are making me no longer have a false belief. Is that what temperance is? Is it a matter of just like suppressing this natural inclination to just get angry when whenever anyone says anything like we don't usually hear people saying? Should we just try to like make that inner voice in our head go away and uh, respond rationally? 
You know, I mean, I, I said this as a joke once, and I actually, the more I think about it, I think it's actually quite accurate. Um, when we talk to a toddler, we say, you are entitled to your feelings, but you're not entitled to act on them in the way you're acting on them right now. Mm-hmm. And so this is part of being part of a family, part of a school, part of a community. And um, yes, we have to we control it. We can't turn it off. We can't make it go away. We can't cut it out of our brains. But we can control it. We can mitigate the effects. And if you know anything about how Uh, especially the Senate, but Congress in general, how it operates, it used to be assumed and almost ubiquitous that when someone would start a disagreement, they would say, you know, I want to just respond to something my good friend from the state of Arizona said. And that's not because it's his good friend. He might hate his guts, but he knows that that is an expectation for how we argue in this space. And by doing that, by saying those words, it becomes more possible to have a genuine argument. Now, contrast that to what you see now. Ted Cruz, when he was at CPEC last time, came out and said, my name is Ted Cruz and my pronouns are kiss my ass. That does not set the table for a constructive argument. I, I just want to say I want to take him up on that. And next time I see him, <laughs> I'm going to dress him as kiss my ass because that's obviously what he wants. That's what he wants, yeah. yeah. And so, again, politicians respond to the market. And the market is such that we all are not inclined to be temperate. We all are inclined to hate the other side. And so when a politician serves up red meat like that, he's not doing it. I mean, I think Ted Cruz is a chameleon. Whatever you want him to be, he's going to be. Right now, that's where the climate is. That's where the political advantage is. And so he's happy to behave that way. And you see that on the left as well. Yeah, yeah. I think the system selects for people. uh, It does. uh, Who... um, you know, talking that way. Uh, it you know, it didn't sort of, used to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back and look at the behavior of the Senate and the most powerful senators, I mean, there were a lot of problems, right? Not a lot of, there were very few, if any, black people, very few, if any, women. It was an old white guy's club. But you also had senators who would never in a million years have behaved the way that Ted Cruz does. Or they disagree on the floor, but then they'd go out to dinner afterwards. Uh-huh, exactly. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I found really useful for quelling this urge to get outraged when somebody says something that is politically unfamiliar to me, I'm going to home in on this phrase, politically unfamiliar, because I think a lot of what happens when we get outraged is just that it's almost as if we don't even think about the issue itself, but there are these sort of rules of conversational etiquette where the second we hear some alarm bell sounding word, we just get angry without even thinking about it. <laughs> One way that I've found it helpful to kind of counteract that um, is by at least trying to consume a wide variety of media. Um, this goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about right. the internet actually making that possible in a way it wasn't when I was growing up. I've found that that achieves a certain baseline where maybe something the person you're talking to just said actually is outrageous and offensive and you don't agree with it, but at least you've heard it before. You're not hearing it for the first time and not hearing it for the first time 
uh, like reduces the likelihood that it's going to trigger that outrage response because like, oh, yes, I know there are people who think this and I've heard the reasons for it and blah, blah, blah. And now we can actually converse about it rather than me just getting angry. And so one thing that I've kind of thought for a while about this is, you know, maybe uh, a simple step we could take in the direction of being more temperate is just familiarizing ourselves more with the different views that, frankly, are kind of mainstream, even if we are in our echo chambers and we haven't heard about them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm thinking about Aristotle while you're talking. Right? That's good. We should always be thinking about Aristotle. <laughs> I mean, uh, virtues are hard. And they require maturity, and they require a lifetime of practice. And the fact is that you live in a world where you get that practice, right? And that practice is reinforced. Most people are not. And part of this polarization Hmm. is that we rarely have the opportunity to engage one-on-one as political equals, as fellow citizens, as Americans, as, you know, whatever, Southsiders, right, in the city of Chicago. We don't have those opportunities, right? And because we don't, we can't practice it. And what we have instead is people feeding our worst instincts, telling us this is what they're saying. This is what they think. And sometimes it's absolutely true, right? I mean, um, you see that a lot. But it's also true that when it's framed that way, <laughs> your brain is firing like, uh, you know, this is a threat. You know, you, you, there are literally physiological changes that are going on. Yeah. Like and a stress so, response. Yeah, exactly. And so it's very difficult, very difficult for us to do this. It, it is part of the hard work of being a good Democrat small d. Mm-hmm. And, and I have said on a number of occasions that my generation didn't absolutely abysmal job of fostering those kind of skills on the part of young people. Mm, Yeah. Maybe because they weren't as direly needed. That's part of it. That's absolutely part of it. The other thing is that um, as partisanship grows, the suspicion of any kind of political education grows as well. And so what you had was this idea of Oh, I can go on and on and on about this. But service learning was this idea that, you know what, let's just not even deal with politics as part of citizenship. Let's just talk about cleaning up the park. And that's how you can be a good citizen, which is certainly true, but it's not all there is to being a citizen. But it became the only thing we can do. And it worked. Young people are good at service. They're lousy at politics. And it's not their fault. It's ours. It seems like another idea in the air here is whatever we can do to try to help bring about, I'm going to call it like deep desegregation. So like superficial desegregation would be like, I go to a hotel and the cleaning staff are all minorities and technically we're in the same space, but we ignore each other and that kind of sucks. But a more deep desegregation would be one where um, a community is not just integrated sort of spatially, like they inhabit the same space, Mm -hmm. but they're actually, there's at least significant overlap in the collaborative projects that they engage in. Mm -hmm. There's like people working together towards a goal. And at least anecdotally, in the past, that has been a really productive mechanism for getting people to overcome their tribalist instincts. So famously, people of different races who maybe started off really racist going into World War II or the Vietnam War and then having to fight together and save each other's lives, at least anecdotally, that was a very effective mechanism for overcoming their, you know, sort of racist feelings going in. So um, do you think maybe that's another approach we can try to take? And, you know, if so, like, what do we do to try to achieve like this sort of like deep desegregation? Well, it's much harder than it used to be. 
you still had this kind of segregation, right? I mean, it used to be that, you know, like say in the 50s or so, the, you know, the unions were all Democrats. Um, the Catholics were all Democrats. The Presbyterians were all Republicans. The country clubs were all Republicans. I mean, you used to have that. Yeah. But it was also true that um, there were all these opportunities within civil society. This goes back to Robert Putnam's famous work, Bowling Alone, were benign ways for us to meet people who were not completely like us and we shared an endeavor. We shared a common goal. And I actually have in the book that if you want to do something about this, finding those kind of organizations is one way to do it. I'm all for people um, volunteering, working on campaigns. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a way of empowering ourselves. But in terms of addressing this kind of chasm between the other side, um, there are less organizations that you can join. I, I, I don't know if I can say a number or a percentage, but there are many more organizations that only exacerbate our partisan split. And religion used to be um, a way to find diversity, but it's not anymore, right? Or it's certainly less than it used to be. There are many um, congregations within the Christian community, within the Jewish community. I don't know enough about the Islamic or other religions to say. But where you know this parish is really conservative or this denomination is really conservative. And so if you go there, you're going to hear the same stuff. Maybe not in exactly the same words, but it's all going to be reinforced. So it takes some work now to find those organizations, but they're out there. Mm. It's it, out there where you will find people who like curling as much as you do or who who want to rescue animals as much as you do or who want to play in a community band as much as you do who are completely on the other side and yeah. I, you know i've said it on a number of occasions but when you meet people in a more benign setting face to face learn you know that they live down the street and they have two kids and and their husband you know is out of work or whatever you meet them as people and it is harder to hate people. It is easier to hate abstractions. It's easier to hate a, a faceless tag on an internet post. Yeah. And a caricature. So, I right, hate exactly. those caricatures. Precisely. It's horrible. And then when you add to that, you and I disagree about a lot, but we share our commitment to making this um, little league work really well and to having kids have a good time and learn stuff, or we share our commitment to getting dogs off the street. When you share that commitment and when you are um, united in this shared enterprise, I'm going to tell you that hate is almost impossible. And so if I were going to make any suggestion, I would say go out and find those opportunities. Find what you want to do and you know, meet these people that you see as the enemy in a different setting. And here's a very weird but I think correct analogy. When a dog walks by your dog's house, they seem out the window, they bark, right? If you take those same two dogs to the dog park, they know yeah, like, that that's neutral territory, doesn't yeah, belong to anybody, belongs to all of us, and we're going to have a good time playing. So we, as mammals... <laughs> yeah, we've got we to find the political dog park we to We've got to find the political yeah. dog park, yes. Excellent. In a way, your proposal reminds me of... An idea I've heard coming out of the interfaith movement 
where you know the, the thought is something like, okay, I'm I'm inherent to this religion. The person I'm talking to is inherent to a different religion. I don't have to pull any punches about saying that they're wrong. Right. I think they got it wrong, but it doesn't mean, you know, I can, like, I'm not going to kill them. Like, right, <laughs> they're right, just wrong. right, right. Like, and that's fine. It's a way of like figuring out how to be fine with the fact that other people are wrong. You know, um, well, they're not you wrong have, about everything, and they're not exactly they're right. Not, they're just wrong about this thing, and the fact that you you have. Um, Right, you trust that they're not wrong about absolutely everything. Well, and like, that pulls you, in. you see, I mean, I actually heard this uh, Muslim man. This was years and years ago, yeah. but he said, "If you want to know what Islam is, look at my life." And I'm thought, and my first thought was, I "Wonder how many Christians would be willing to make that." statement. So my point is that, yeah, we can disagree about doctrine and absolutely to yeah. down to the core of what we believe. But if yeah. we recognize the other person is a person of integrity, who's trying to live out their commitments in ways that are genuine and decent, that cuts a lot of ice in terms of theological disputes. Chris Beam, thanks so much for joining me on what I hope was uh, a trip over to the political dog park uh, this <laughs> afternoon. I like dog parks. I, my dog, I enjoy it more than my dog, actually. But in any case, uh, I appreciate the opportunity and I enjoyed it as well. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at ElucidationsPod. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.